Well, here we are. The last Sunday in 2020. It's been a year, hasn't it? Man, it has been it has been a crazy year. Um, craziest year of my life, that's for sure. Um, I hope it doesn't get too much crazier. I mean, I'm only 35. <laughs> I might have a few, by God's grace, maybe a few more decades to go, but I hope it doesn't get crazier than 2020. This is, this is right in my kind of comfort zone of the limits of what I can take um, in the flesh. And so, uh, but here we are, and and we're, we're in Luke 6, so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke 6, and, and we're, we're dealing with a, a subject that we really dealt with last week, um, this, this idea of legalism. And, and, and last week, we, we looked at the, the Pharisees, and, and we saw that they struggled doctrinally with the issue of the Sabbath. They had a very legalistic view of the Sabbath. But as you, as you think about obedience, a, a lot of us think of obedience in, in one of two ways. We think of obedience as kind of two options. We can either be legalistic or we can be rebellious. We, we can have legalism or we can have antinomianism. Uh, antinomianism I've used the word before, and I know we've used it in the church, and for, for those of you who don't know what antinomianism means, it just means anti-law, just kind of a rebellious spirit. Um, you, you're like, I'm, I'm saved, I've, I, you know, I walked an aisle, I, I said a prayer, I'm, I'm saved in Christ, and so therefore I can just kind of live it up. There's no regard for obedience. There's no need for obedience. I can do whatever I want, period. Kind of a rebellious spirit. Um, we can go all throughout God's Word, and we can see, as we talked about last week, those who love Christ obey His commandments. Amen? Those who are in Christ delight in obeying. We do obey. It's not that we should obey, it's that we do. It doesn't mean we have perfect obedience, but antinomianism is, 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 contradicts what it means to walk in Christ. We can see that. We can see somebody who live, lives an outwardly sinful wretched life, even if they proclaim Christ, and we can look at antinomianism and we can think, that's bad. We look at them and we think, that's, that's obviously wrong. That should be condemned. We, we, we take church discipline for stuff like that. We, we approach our brother and sister who are in sin because of things like that. That's, that's wrong. It, and if we're not careful, what we, what we would say is, I actually feel more comfortable in legalism. I feel more comfortable in creating all these rules and boundaries and, 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 and living in the flesh and, and, and trying to do everything that I can to work it out to make sure that I don't disobey. So I'm going to build all these fences. I'm going to create all these rules and it's going to be hard and it's going to be burdensome. And, 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 and all these rules that I create, many of them are going to be extra biblical. They might be wise, they might, even, they might even be helpful, but we treat them as doctrine and we say, I'm going to live so far away from that that I make sure that I'm, I am doing everything that I can do to make sure that I don't cross that line. It's legalism. And we look at something like that and we say, this is preferable to that. This is actually good and that's bad. And here's the reality. Christ doesn't offer us legalism or antinomianism, does he? In fact, most of the people that Christ is dealing with in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in his life, in his ministry, most of the people that Christ is dealing with and, and, and creating the most conflict with are the legalists. When you think about legalism, I just, want, I just want, you know, you can write this down in your notes and just something for you to ponder this week. Even something for you to ponder in this moment. Are you comfortable with legalism? In your own heart, are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with works righteousness? Are you comfortable with it for your wife? Wives, are you comfortable with that for your husbands? 
parents, are, are you comfortable raising nice, little, obedient, legalistic kids? Are you okay with that? I don't want us as a church to be comfortable with legalism. I know we're not comfortable with antinomianism as a church. There's plenty of sermons we could talk about antinomianism and, and, and walking in righteousness. Well, I, I, I know we would all say amen. But when we really get down to the heart of it, are we comfortable with legalism? Many of us are. Because many of us don't think that legalism has consequences. M many, many of us think that legalism only keeps us away from being disobedient. But friends, legalism has fruit. Legalism has consequences. And we will look at that this morning. We will look at the fruit of legalism. It's not pretty. When it rears its ugly head, it is destructive. It is a killer. It's a killer of relationships. It's a killer of joy. It is a killer of righteousness. It seeks to exalt self over Christ. It, it seeks to exalt our work instead of Christ's work. And so we will look at that this morning as we looked at it last week. My main point this morning is this. Legalism kills. Jesus restores. Legalism kills. Jesus restores. So hopefully you've made your way to Luke chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be in verses 6 through 10. Please follow along as I read aloud. Luke 6, 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. We have the same magnificent Savior here in these two very similar stories, both occurring on the Sabbath. Last week we saw sort of the, the doctrinal issues that the Pharisees had about the Sabbath, didn't we? Jesus was in the grain field with his disciples, and, and on the Sabbath, as according to Deuteronomy, as was permitted in the law, they were traveling through the grain field, and Jesus and his disciples stopped and ate. They plucked some grain with their hand, enough for that uh, meal in the moment. They ate it, went on their business. The Pharisees had problems with that because they had created laws about the Sabbath, about what was permissible and what was not permissible. They didn't, they didn't trust the word of God, which said they could pluck the grains out of the grain fields and eat them. They created their own rules to say that was not permissible, so they were accusing Jesus of sin. We, we talked about this last week. The, 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 the Pharisees had a doctrinal problem about the Sabbath. They, they did not understand the letter of the law. The letter of the law was not sufficient. They, they, they created their own letters of the law. They misinterpreted the word of, of God. They missed the letter of the law. They didn't obey it. They, were, they, they didn't obey God's word. They obeyed their word. They also missed the heart of the law. The, the heart of the Sabbath was one of joy, one of peace, one of rest. One that highlighted God's work, not man's work. The Pharisees saw the Sabbath as a day to highlight their own piety, their own self-righteousness, their own ability in the flesh to obey the Sabbath. Third, they missed the lawgiver of the Sabbath. They missed the fact that Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath is actually about him. It's not about them. See, these, this, what we've got to understand, church, is that doctrine 
False doctrine leads to really, really, really nasty fruit. That, are, that what we believe has consequences, both positive and negative. See, and we see this here in Luke chapter 6. Luke, uh, Luke 6, 6 through 11. In Luke 6, 1 through 5, we kind of just see from a, from a doctrinal standpoint these questions and these accusations that the, that the Pharisees are trying to rec- reconcile in their head. But in, but in Luke 6, 6 through 11, we kind of see how those ideas impact other people. The fruit of this legalistic mindset. How destructive their false theology was. It rears its ugly head here. Let's look at it. Point one. The legalists look for evil in order to condemn. The legalists look for evil in order to condemn. Legalists being the Pharisees. Now, as as we remember from last week, the the Pharisees were looking for and they were hoping to usher in the Messiah. The Pharisees believed that by their obedience and by the by the obedience of, of God's people that they would usher in the coming of the Messiah. It wasn't necessarily just God's grace or God's mercy or God's time. It was if we obey, God will do. God will send it. God will send the Messiah and the Messiah, he will abolish Rome and he will, you know, set up his kingdom here and now and we'll be done. But it's based on our obedience. That's why they create these laws. That's why they created all these different laws. They didn't want to get anywhere close. If we create laws, if we do this in the flesh, we'll be good. We'll never disobey if, we, if our fences are far enough from the line. But here's, here's the reality. The religion they practiced, it was not true Judaism. It wasn't. What they did was not according to God's word. It was self-righteousness. It was works righteousness. It was cold, dead religion with no heart for God, no love for brother. It was just do. The way I make God happy is by doing. God is happy with my sacrifice here in the flesh with no true repentant heart. I'm just working and doing. God is happy with my, with my public prayer life that seeks to exalt me. God's happy with my deeds. With no heart for God, no love for others, only a heart to glorify myself and to look good and for people to like me and to, and to make money. We think that that, we can often be the same way. We think we can have this outward sense of piety to make our lives look good, to make us look obedient, to, to have this kind of image on Facebook where, where we can kind of look more righteous than we are and, and people think well of us, but our hearts, when we lay on our head at night on the pillow, we realize just how much we don't desire Christ. We don't really desire holiness. We don't desire Him. We just desire much of us. So before we condemn the Pharisees, understand that we can often be the same way. But this is where the Pharisees were. They created this false system of self-righteousness. And here, Jesus, the true Messiah, the one that they should have been anticipating, the one that they should have been looking for, he comes. He comes on the scene. And he's not what the Pharisees expected. Now, don't get me wrong. The Pharisees were looking for a Messiah. We saw this a few chapters back. The Pharisees were going and they heard of of the miracles that Jesus was doing. And so so they come on scene to verify, is this indeed the Messiah? Because Jesus at that point was checking all the boxes of the specific miracles that he was doing. The healing of the the leper, casting out demons, etc. Jesus was checking the boxes. He was doing it. Jesus was every bit revealing himself to be the Messiah. But the problem was in this false religion, this false sense of piety, this self-righteous system that the Pharisees created, it, it, it was a system that made much of them. It was a system that made them look good. It was a system that made them wealthy. Jesus will later in the gospel say that the Pharisees love money. Pharisees love stuff. The Pharisees love the praise of man. Their, their, their religion was all about the praise of man. The religion was all about money. The religion was all about self. It was not about God. 
It's not about holiness. It was about self-exaltation, not God-exaltation. So when Christ comes on the scene as the Messiah, as the one true long-awaited Messiah that we celebrated our Christmas Eve service uh, on, on Thursday, and as we celebrated on, on Christmas Day, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, as we celebrated the coming of the true Messiah, that Messiah that came, he arrives on the scene, and he proves that he is the Messiah by the fulfilling of prophecy. Everything according to God's word that God promised the Messiah would be, Christ was. The Pharisees miss it. The Pharisees reject it. Because Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus was a threat to their system. Jesus was a threat to their self-exaltation. Jesus was a threat to their, their, their nasty, evil self Righteousness. Jesus was a threat to that. See, Jesus comes and he, he calls such people to repent. Jesus wasn't impressed with their piety. And everything that Jesus did, from calling himself God and, and, and forgiving a man of his sins, and hanging out with sinners, and cleansing a leper, and obeying the law on the Sabbath of, of, of how he could eat his food. And even here today as, as he heals a man on the Sabbath, everything that he did was contrary to their legalistic system. Everything. It exalted him and the crowds followed him. It made them look like fools. They're angry because Jesus didn't conform to their system. And so we find ourselves here in chapter 6 on this different Sabbath. Not the same Sabbath, on a, another Sabbath, as it says here in Luke 6.6. 6, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. I believe Jesus here was probably preaching the gospel. He was teaching, obviously, from the, from the Old Testament. And Luke here notes there was a man whose, whose right hand was, was withered. There was a man and his, his hand was not able to be used. His hand was, it was, it was, like a, it was like a dead hand. You can imagine how difficult that must have been in that time where most jobs were physical labor. They didn't have call centers. They didn't have the internet. You couldn't be an Instagram influencer. You couldn't make money that way, okay? Most people made money with their hands. Very blue collar. Hard workers. You can imagine how hard it would be for a man with a withered hand in that time. How difficult for a man with such a disease for his hand to just be withered. He was there. He was present among the scribes and among the Pharisees. And Jesus there preaching in the synagogue was this man highlighted. At this point, it says in verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. The scribes and the Pharisees had their eyes on Jesus. They were watching him like a hawk. This, this word for watch, it wasn't just they saw him, it's that they were gazing at him. It's a specific type of watching. I can't get my eye off you type of watching. Like a, like a lion in a field, like with its eyes fixed on its prey. Last year, Cameron and I had the opportunity to go to Zambia. We were in Zambia. We had a really, one of the days we had an opportunity to go on a safari. And I could truly say it was one of the best days of my life. It was amazing. Loved it. Everything about it, I loved. Uh, just being outdoors, seeing these amazing animals that God created in their natural habitats. It was fantastic. One of the best parts of the day was when Cameron and I got to walk cheetahs. And we, it was really scary because you've got these big cats and they're, they're, I mean, they're not domesticated like cheetahs here. They're, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of acres in the spot and they let these, all these animals out to go hunt on the land. I mean, they're, they're really, really big cages. I mean, you know, miles of cages you feel like you're in the middle of the savanna. 
So these are really cats that do eat and do hunt and do pray. And as we were sitting there, there was, there was this point where they, would, where they would sit the cats down and we could kind of go up behind the cats and kind of put our hands on their heads and kind of stick our heads in between their faces and take pictures. It was very scary. And, but what was interesting is what would happen is these, these cats would, every so often, they would get their eyes fixed. As, they were, as their heads were kind of facing forward to take this picture, their eyes would get fixed on something. If it was a squirrel, a small animal, I don't know. But their eyes would get fixed, and they wouldn't stop. And all of a sudden, you'd kind of see them lean forward. And, 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 and our tour guides, they, they, they understood what was happening. And so what they were doing is they, they would actually, and they were crazy, I don't get it, but they would bop them on the head. And, the, and they would kind of like, it's crazy. I was like, you are absolutely nuts. But it's interesting there where you, where you see these, these, these animals praying. They're, they're, they're praying on their prey. They're, they're out for the hunt. Their eyes are fixed. And they can't get anything else off of it. With the intent to harm, with the intent to devour. I see this picture here of the Pharisees like that. They're watching him like a hawk. Their eyes are fixed on this guy. Not with the intent of worship, though. With the intent to devour. With, with the intent to condemn. It says here that they, they were looking to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. We could see from the, future, the, the chapters before that the, the Pharisees were already coming to look to Jesus to see if he would heal. I mean, in, in the, the scene uh, a few weeks ago, we, as we see the, the paralytic who was healed through the ceiling, he could come, came through the ceiling and he was placed before Jesus. All the Pharisees and the scribes were there. Again, I believe they were there verifying indeed whether Christ was the Messiah or not, whether this guy is or not. They were all there to see Jesus heal and he healed. This point here, though, they're wanting to see, will he heal on the Sabbath? Will he heal on the Sabbath? And why was that important? Well, they were wanting to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? So that they might find a reason to accuse him. They weren't looking to see, at this point, if Christ was the Messiah. They weren't there for the same reason. They weren't there to see, is this the man the long-awaited Messiah, so that we can submit to him, so we can praise him, so we can worship him. No, at this point, they were there looking to see if this was the Messiah, so that they, if he, if he would heal them on the Sabbath, so that they would find reason to accuse him. Do we see that? This idea of healing on the Sabbath, there's more laws that the, the Pharisees made. More laws about the Sabbath. We talked about it last week. Simply, don't work, enjoy God, enjoy His mercy, enjoy His grace, celebrate Him. That was the Sabbath. The Pharisees, again, they, they created all these different rules, all these different regulations about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. But they allowed for some, some different types of allowances on the Sabbath. If someone's life was in danger, you could help them. How kind, Pharisees, that if someone's life is in danger, you can help them on the Sabbath. If a woman was giving birth, you could, uh, you could practice midwifery. How kind, Pharisees. Oh, how gracious to allow a woman to give birth on the Sabbath. They created all these systems about what you could or could not do on the Sabbath. But if it was not a mortal wound, if it was not a mortal type disease where someone was about to die, if it's something that could wait until the next day to help them, then you must wait until the next day to help them. The Sabbath wasn't about doing good. The Sabbath was about refraining from doing anything. And so what they were hoping for here and what they were looking for here was that Jesus would violate their oral law and heal on the Sabbath and do good on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This word for accuse was to, was to make a charge against Jesus, to actually bring him before the law and accuse him and charge him. 
That's why they were there. They were not there to worship. They were there to accuse. And do we see the irony in this? Do you see the irony in all of this? Like, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of, of joy. It, was supposed, it says multiple times that it was a holy day. It's a good day. It was supposed to be a day of, of restoration. It was supposed to be a day of worship. It was supposed to be a day of remembrance of the, the work of God and the mercy of God and how God would sanctify his people. As we talked about last week, that was the point of the Sabbath. And here, on the Sabbath, these individuals who supposedly cared so much about the Sabbath, who were so, you know, obsessed with following the Sabbath, so obsessed with following God's word, they were overjoyed with the idea of Sabbath. They were so good at following it. They, they centered their whole lives around this idea of the Sabbath. Here they are on the Sabbath in the synagogue looking for Jesus to sin. That's what they're looking for. They find themselves hypocritically in the synagogue looking for Jesus to sin. And when I say sin, sin according to their own man-made rules, their own regulations. They wrongly, they wrongly saw Jesus as unrighteous. They wrongly saw Jesus as a sinner, according to their own man-made rules. In this moment, the synagogue, even if this man, Jesus, was breaking their rules, even if he actually was a sinner, which he wasn't, these individuals weren't hoping for repentance. They weren't hoping for holiness. They wanted to take this guy down because he was a threat to them. He was a threat to their righteousness, to their self-righteousness. He was a threat to their image. He was a threat to their system. As they sit here on the Sabbath, this day they cared about plotting evil in their hearts against Christ hoping that he would sin so that they could accuse him. Friends, there, there is a way. There is a way that Christians are called to humbly minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ caught up in sin. It wasn't necessarily wrong that individuals are noticing sin and wanting to do something about it. It's not a bad thing, as long as it's done according to God's word, right? As long as we're looking to God's word and God's standards for righteousness and not our own self-systems of righteousness. It is a good thing to approach our brothers and sisters in Christ who are caught up in sin. It's good. We're called to do that. We see this in Galatians 6, 1-5, through 5, that, that, that if our brother and sisters are caught up in sin, that we are to restore them. But not only restore them, Restore them in gentleness. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But we also keep a watch on ourselves so that we wouldn't become tempted. See that? The goal of approaching our brother and sister in Christ in sin is restoration, is repentance, is goodness, is holiness. And we're not called to do so in a self-righteous way as if we never sin. We do so in a way saying, humbly, brother, I'm noticing this and I'm looking for restoration here for you and for your family, for you and other people. But I don't, I'm not coming as if I'm perfect because I know I'm not. I'm not coming in a con condemning way. The goal is restoration. The goal of approaching from a heart of holiness, a heart that desires holiness, a heart that desires obedience is one of we approach with restoration in mind, with mercy in mind, with grace in mind, with repentance in mind. We also see this in Matthew 18. When we, when we approach our brother and sister who, who sins against us, if, if our brother and sister 
repents, we can what? We can rejoice because we've won our brother. We've won our sister. The goal of approaching a brother and sister in Christ and sin is restoration. We see that. That's not what the Pharisees were doing. They weren't hoping for restoration. They weren't hoping for repentance. See, this, when, when, when the legalist comes and he creates all of his rules and he creates all, all, all of his own man-made religion and, and, and man-made uh, commandments from, from God's word, it's all to exalt self. And so the only way they would ever approach someone else is with a very condemning heart because they didn't follow their rules. Very condemning heart because you didn't live up to what my rules are that I follow really, 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 really well. There's a self-righteous way that we can approach the sins of others that is ungodly. It is self-seeking. It is accusatory. It does not hope for righteousness, but it actually hopes for stumbling. This self-righteous individual hypocritically has eyes on everyone else, but attempts to hide the unrighteousness in their own heart. And the goal in this type of approach is not love. It's not restoration. It is self-exaltation by bringing others down. Throughout the past few years, I've, I've noticed that many in the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel movement are guilty of sexual immorality. Many marriages being broken up, many prominent health, wealth, prosperity teachers uh, are, are, are cheating on their wives. And if I'm honest, I, I, I've looked at many of those individuals and I thought, ha, serves them right. I knew that was coming. Obviously, their, their false doctrine leads to, to sexual morality and love of money and love of self. And, and a sort of self-righteous way. Not brokenheartedness that Carl Lentz would have decades of cheating on his wife or years of cheating on his wife over in Hillsong. Not a brokenness, kind of a, ha, thought so. It's not a, not a very holy heart in approaching sin. And, and, I, and, I, and I want to repent of that. I, I've, I've sent text messages and laughed about such things. That's wrong. It's very pharisaical, self-righteous way of, of looking at the sins of the other side. Shouldn't we have hearts that hope for repentance? Shouldn't we have hearts that hope for restoration? Shouldn't we have hearts that desire to see God move even among our enemies? Even among those who are rebellious? The self-righteous doesn't look for that. Self-righteous look to condemn in order to make much of self. The legalists look for evil in order to condemn. Point two, but the holiness of Jesus exposes the legalists as frauds. The holiness of Jesus exposes the legalists as frauds. It says, but he knew their thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. They weren't there causing a stir. They weren't there being loud. They weren't there outwardly being rebellious. They weren't, they weren't sitting there and, and, and like picking up stones to throw at Jesus. They weren't interrupting his message, interrupting his sermon. But Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus didn't say, I, I, I see you guys sitting here and technically you're not causing any trouble. Technically, you're not doing anything wrong. So, so, so therefore, technically, you're obedient. Isn't that how we view obedience sometimes? That if I'm doing the outward thing the right way, even with a sinister heart, with an evil heart, maybe giving money for the wrong reasons to make myself look good, that we somehow consider that obedient. No, Jesus always looks at the heart. He, he, he always sees the heart. Isaiah 1, we, we see this picture of, uh, of, of God speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah and he says, I don't want anything else to do with your sacrifices. 
I don't want anything to do with your feast or your, any of that. Get rid of that. Ugh. I, I'm going to hide my face at you when you pray. I can't even stand it. I'm sick of it. It's not that they weren't praying. It's not that they weren't doing sacrifices. It's not that they, they weren't ob- observing certain aspects of the law that God was calling them to observe outwardly. The problem is their hearts were filthy. They wanted nothing to do with holiness. They only wanted outward piety, an outward sense of, of, of righteousness. But Jesus here, he's, he's looking at this people who the culture thought was righteous. The culture thought was indeed holy and obedient. And he, and he looks at them and he sees their ungodly hearts. He sees their thoughts. He sees their intent. He sees their motivation. And dear friends, may it be said that as you are sitting here this morning, God sees your heart too. God sees my heart here even in this moment of preaching. God knows your heart. He sees it. Is your heart for him? Is your heart for holiness? Does your heart love Christ? Or does your heart love self? You cannot fool God. You cannot trick God. We can trick each other, but we cannot trick God. We cannot confuse God. God sees our hearts. God knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. And these self-righteous individuals, Christ comes here and he knows their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, there's, there's the man sitting here. We have two groups of people here. We have the self-righteous individuals who want to use the withered man in order to accuse Jesus. They don't, they don't love the withered man. They don't care about the man with the withered hand. They want to use this, this, this very sad situation for their own glory to bring down someone else. That's what legalists do. They don't care about mercy. Legalists care about self at all costs. They don't care the families they got to bring down, the individuals they got to bring down. They don't care. It's all about self. They might look good on the outside, but they're all motivated by self. They're all watching the withered hand man at this point. Jesus is. The legalists are. They have one intent. Jesus has another intent. They seek to harm. Jesus seeks to restore. Jesus says, stand up. The withered man stands up. He comes and he stands next to Jesus. He, he, verse 8 says, he, he rose and, and he stood there. And then here Jesus exposes the Pharisees. He exposes them for the frauds that they are. He shows just how rebellious, how ungodly they were by revealing his holiness. Jesus reveals his holiness. When Jesus reveals his holiness, it exposes us all, doesn't it? When we stand in the light of the radiance of the glory of God, it exposes us for the sinners and self-righteous individuals that we are. Always. But here Jesus first, he reveals his holiness. He reveals his authority as a teacher. Jesus is a brilliant teacher. Jesus is brilliant at making arguments. Jesus is is brilliant at always getting to the heart of the issue. Jesus would have, Jesus, I know, was would have been the best expository preacher because the the main point of his sermon would always have been right in line with the text. And here Jesus, he's, he's, he's asking them, he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to do harm, to save life, or to destroy it. Jesus gets the heart of it. Is it lawful? Let me ask you, Pharisees. The Pharisees never, ever, 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 ever have an answer for Jesus. They never answer. Ever. They only get mad. You see that. Jesus always exposes the fact that they actually don't understand the law. Later in Luke, Jesus will say, you have all these rules about the Sabbath, but if your ox fell in a ditch, each one of you would pull it out. If your your son was in trouble, each one of you would help him. He exposes the Pharisees in that manner. And here, he says, is it, is, it, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? 
Interesting question. Because the Pharisees saw righteousness as I'm just not going to do anything. The Sabbath was all about me not doing anything. I'm, I'm going to go sit in my house. It's going to be a joyless day. It's going to be a sad day. It's going to be a somber day. It's going to be a boring day. That's what the Sabbath was for. On the seventh day, God was bored. I want to reflect that. God was boring. He sat there and he, was, he looked at his creation and he was grumpy. He nitpicked it. Oh, that could have been a little better. That could have been a little better. Meh. That was a Sabbath. Just don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. They created all these rules about what they couldn't do. We talked about them last week. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to the sermon. But he, is it lawful to do good? Is it? In this point, I think Jesus is making that healing this man in this moment, loving this man, loving this man with a withered hand, ministering to this man with a withered hand with a problem, it was the right thing to do. It was the good thing to do. It was right to help this man. It was right to do good on the Sabbath. It was the good and right and merciful thing to do. It was lawful. It exalted Christ. The Sabbath was not a day of simply no work. As we talked about last week, the Sabbath was a day of mercy. It was a day of joy. It was a day highlighting the goodness of God. But Jesus highlights them. Is it lawful to do harm? <laughs> See, the Pharisees, you know, to do, to do good is actually to, to, at this point would have been to actually go out and actively do something good to heal this man. Meanwhile, the Pharisees are, are sitting there doing what? Plotting evil. Looking to condemn. Looking to accuse. Hoping for unrighteousness from their point of view. They're doing harm. They're hypocrites. Jesus knows their thoughts. He exposes them. You are hypocrites. Oh, you, 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 you will not rejoice over this man who's healed. You won't rejoice in the good that's done on the Sabbath. You won't rejoice in the mercy that's shown on the Sabbath. You won't rejoice in the provision of God on the Sabbath last week and with the grain. You won't. But you're sitting here plotting evil, doing evil, gathering together and, and, and making sinister plans. Is it lawful to, to save a life? This, this idea of to save a life would be to, to, to save from, from death. It's not necessarily a salvific sense, but to save, a, you know, save someone from death. Their law is permitted for that. But is it lawful to destroy a life, to, to ruin a life? It's interesting here in, in verse 11, we'll get to it in a second, but consider their desire to destroy Jesus, to do something to him. To do something about him at all cost. Consider their lack of care for this man. The law, as Jesus says, is summed up in love of God and love of neighbor. You really want to understand the heart of the law? It's to love God and love neighbor. That's the heart of the law. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. You can't truly love your neighbor without loving God. But in this moment, because they didn't love God, they love themselves, they don't care about their neighbor. They didn't care. There's a man who's sitting there in the midst of them who's needy, and all they cared about was their own selfish pride. That's the heart of legalism. That's the fruit of legalism. I don't care about other people. I care about myself. I care about my image. 
Is it lawful to do good? Is it lawful to do harm? Is it lawful to save a life? Is it lawful to destroy it? He exposes them, and they have no answer for that because they know if they answer the wrong way, it exposes them. But in their own selfish pride, they don't answer. But Jesus also shows his authority over this disease. See that. Verse 10, after looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. And what happens? And the man was healed. Full restoration to the man's hand. Full restoration. Oh, see the power and the sovereignty of God in this moment. See the goodness of Jesus. See the mercy of Jesus. See the power of Jesus in this moment. See it. And glory in it. Glory in his authority over diseases. Glory in his authority over sickness. Glory in his authority over the Sabbath. And see the fact that Jesus isn't even working. Jesus doesn't lift a finger. Not an ounce of sweat falls from Jesus' face. Jesus needs no instruments. Jesus doesn't need a medical book. Jesus doesn't even need essential oils. Here he comes and, and, and Jesus, he speaks. Jesus speaks. And the man is healed. But Jesus didn't work on the Sabbath, did he? Jesus didn't disobey the Sabbath. Jesus didn't dishonor the Sabbath. Jesus lived in the full extent of the Sabbath for his glory. Jesus showed mercy on the Sabbath, just like it told us in Exodus the Sabbath was about. Jesus highlighted his power and his mercy and his sanctification, just like the book of Exodus told us about. Jesus highlighted that he was indeed Lord of the Sabbath, as we talked about last week. Jesus highlights his glory. And in highlighting his glory, he exposes these legalistic individuals as frauds. You guys are frauds. Point three. The unrepentant legalists outwardly plot evil. The unrepentant legalists outwardly plot evil. See, as, as we think about Jesus showing up, and as we think about when, when the word of God is preached and, and, and we see the goodness of Jesus, we see, we see the holiness of Jesus, there's two types of people. There's people who see Jesus, like, like Peter saw Jesus, and like many of the crowd saw Jesus. They see his goodness, they see his holiness, they see he is who he says he is, and they repent. They trust in Christ. They're brought into the light, and they love it. They hate their sin, they forsake their sin, and they trust in Christ. This morning, as, as we see Christ, we see his mercy, and the word of God is preached, and maybe for the very first time, your sin is exposed, your self-righteousness is exposed. Your, your life of making much of you and your own self-made religion, your hatred of others, your hatred of God, and your love of self is exposed for what it is. You have an option. You can give that to Christ. You can repent of that and say, I recognize that and I hate that. And I want to trust in Christ. And Christ will take that sin of self-exaltation, hatred of God. He will take it and pay for it. Paid in full on the cross of Christ. He will offer you mercy. He will offer you forgiveness. He will offer you the grace of God. And you can walk in freedom. You can walk in freedom. You can walk in true joy in light of who Christ is. And you can trust in him. You have that option. Or you can be like the Pharisees. In light of the truth of God, in light of Christ coming and revealing himself, you can reject Christ. You can say, who is Christ to judge me? Who are you, preacher man, to judge me? Who is God's word to judge me? This book is, it's a couple thousand years, it's a couple thousand years old. You don't know what you're talking about. It contradicts science, there's all this other stuff. You don't know what you're talking about. You can do that. You can live in self-righteousness. 
You can be like the Pharisees. Look at the Pharisees here. A miracle has happened. Something amazing has happened. A man who came in with a withered hand was healed. It should have been a time of celebration. It should have been a time where we don't know what just happened, but it was amazing, and he walked in, and he was restored, and something, I, I don't know what happened, but this was amazing. That should have been what happened. They should have partied. They should have thrown a celebration. They should have lifted Jesus up under their shoulders and walked out of their chin and said, yo, Jesus, it should have been awesome, okay? That should have been what happened. But look at what their self-righteousness does. Look what their hatred of God does. Look at what their legalism does. This is what legalism does. This is the fruit of legalism right here. It says what? They are filled with fury. You really want to get a legalist mad? You really want to get somebody who's self-righteous really mad? Really thinking about stuff? Really just their blood boiling? You really want to get a self-righteous person mad? Break their own man-made rules. Break their own man-made rules. Watch their blood boil. Watch them get angry. Watch it. Maybe you've seen it in your own heart. I have. People break my man-made rules, my standards of righteousness that I've created. I get mad. These individuals are angry. In a time where they're supposed to be joyful, they're filled with fury. And what do they do? They plot evil against Jesus. They discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. There they are on the Sabbath, the day that they held so dear, supposedly, plotting evil against Christ. They missed. They missed it. They missed the Lord of the Sabbath. They missed the heart of the law. They missed the letter of the law. And in here, now they find themselves plotting evil. They're furious. They're angry. Got a few minutes left. And I, I, I want to... I want to point out just, just something to you real quick. That, that We see the negative fruit bore of self-righteousness. I want you to see the fruit of an individual who would have understood true obedience and the intent of the law. Turn, turn with me to Psalm 112. Turn, turn with me to Psalm 112. I love this psalm. Doug and I have talked. We're, we're going to try and memorize this psalm this year because I, I, it, encur it encourages me. If you want to join in with us, this would be a good psalm to memorize this year. Psalm 112.1. Praise the Lord. Praise Him. Why? Praise Him because He's worthy of being praised. Praise Him because of who He is. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. He sees the law, and he delights. He sees it as delightful. He sees it as good. He sees it as worthy of obeying because God said it. I fear the Lord and I see that he's revealed his, his righteousness to me. It's a delight to walk in righteousness. It's not a burden. It's not just these rules and regulations I've got to follow. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a joy to follow the commandments of the Lord. That's God's intent. Verse 2 says, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Look, look at these character attributes I, I love. He is gracious. He's merciful and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously, and he lends. His life's changed, right? He's, he's, he's not stingy. He's, he's not worried about, you know, 
hoarding and making much of himself and much of his, his little nest egg. A, a man who fears the Lord and delights in his ways. He, he's generous. He knows that God provides. He trusts God and it's good. It's better to give than to receive. He, he conducts his affairs with justice. In a, in a world that's crying out for justice, justice on their own terms, we, we look at those, according to God's word, those who delight in his law and fear the Lord, they do conduct their affairs with justice, biblical justice, godly justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Remember forever. We have eternal life. Those who are in Christ, we have eternal life. No destruction, no death. We're, we're, we live forever. Shouldn't that, shouldn't, that, shouldn't that impact the way we live now with our stuff? Shouldn't it? I would hope so. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. That'd be a good verse for this year, wouldn't it? I'm not afraid of bad news. Why? Because my hope is in the Lord. My hope's not in politics. My hope's not in Facebook. My, ho my hope's not in a COVID vaccine. My hope's not in any of this other stuff. My hope is in the Lord. Verse 8, his heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Our position in Christ is a position of victory. Again, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Do you see this, church? The beauty of obedience. The beauty of the fear of the Lord. The joy of the Lord here. The fruit of a life that fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. That's the fruit. That is the intent of the law. That was the intent for God's people. Fear God, delight in him. That was the intent. But listen, look at the fruit that is highlighted at the end of Psalm 112 that really, I think, highlights the Pharisees. The wicked man sees it. Sees what? Sees the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the fruit of one who delights in the Lord, the lifestyle of one who obeys the Lord with a heart that desires holiness. The wicked man sees it and he's angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. But listen, the desire of the wicked will perish. The desire of the wicked will perish. Maybe you see Christ this morning, like the Pharisees, you're filled with fury, you gnash your teeth, you rebel, you hate God. Friend, please hear me. Your desires will perish. Yours is not one of joy. Yours is not one of, and the end of this is not one of self-exaltation. It is one of destruction. You will be destroyed. You will experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. No joy, no peace. That is where that road leads. And that is the road marked by legalism self-exaltation, and self-righteousness. You can respond two ways. Walking in joy, obedience, submitting to Christ, worshiping Him, or continuing down the road of self-exaltation. Friends, legalism is not compatible with Christianity. It's not. Legalism is not okay Legalism is not permissible in the Christian life. It's not permissible in our hearts. It kills the individual on the inside, from the inside out, eating them from the inside as they rely on their own works. It's not happy. It's not joyful. And no matter how hard you try, it will never bring you what you desire. However, Jesus comes. He offers us life. Jesus comes and he offers us peace. Jesus restores what is broken by his power and by his grace. And as we trust in Jesus, we can rest fully like the Sabbath intended. Jesus offers the true Sabbath rest. It's only found in Christ Jesus, not in our works, not in our obedience, because of what Christ did. 
And when we trust in Christ, we can have full, true joy and true peace. And the Spirit comes inside of us and we can truly obey to His glory and not our own. Friends, trust in Christ today.